everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast, where we share the stories of the Strong Towns movement in action. I'm Rachel, Program Director at Strong Towns. Today, I'm bringing on another one of my colleagues. A couple weeks back, we featured Krista and Sierra, and today it's Jay Stange, Content Manager at Strong Towns. He is a former newspaper reporter, teacher, community organizer, and Alaska native. In this conversation, he's talking about his efforts to slow down cars on busy roads in both his former neighborhood in Anchorage, Alaska, as well as his current neighborhood in West Hartford, Connecticut. Jay discusses the ways that he's worked with neighbors to push for change, tested out temporary approaches, and addressed the concerns of business owners along the roads in question. In his working-class, renter-dominated neighborhood in Anchorage, these efforts were also part of a larger movement to help people believe in the future of their neighborhood and combat apathy, to show people that they had something to be proud of in their community. In this episode, we also talk about Jay's lifelong love of biking, from riding his bike to sports practice as a kid when his parents couldn't drive him, to choosing to bike commute and biking with his own kids today. Plus, we discuss Jay's belief that change should look fun and it should happen collaboratively. I know you're going to appreciate the energy and passion that Jay brings to this conversation. It's something that he brings to all of his work at Strong Towns. Jay Stange, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast. It is good to have you on the show for your inaugural episode. Thanks, Rachel. It's really great to be here with you today. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be involved with Strong Towns? For most of my life, I've been a community organizer, but in a lot of different ways. I I grew up in Alaska, and my first big job out of college was to be a newspaper reporter. And I did that for many years, wrote about crime and the economy and all kinds of strange things. And I ended up um, feeling really like I, I wanted to be you know, less of a passive reporter and more of an active participant. So I started being a lot more engaged in politics and campaign work and kind of uh, had a, a long career of um, being a, a community organizer and a campaigner, did like kind of public relations for nonprofits for a long time. And I always have had that in my DNA, I think, being a community organizer. So in, in recent years, when I, I moved out here to Connecticut from Alaska two years ago, I was uh, mostly engaged in figuring out uh, how to uh, address a, a bunch of problems that I saw. And I, I started reading Strong Towns on Facebook, actually. And the more I saw, the more I felt like Strong Towns was really... Um, an organization and a movement that was really working at the roots of a lot of the problems that I'd been only sort of addressing the symptoms of. And so I was a Strong Towns follower for a long time. And, and when the uh, content job um, came up, I felt like it might be a good match for my skills. And so that's how I became engaged professionally with the organization. Well, we're so glad that you decided to apply and join the team a few months back. So I feel like there's a lot that we could talk about. You've you've had a very exciting life, done a lot of very interesting things in your life. But one of the things that I wanted to focus this conversation on was some of the efforts that you've been involved in to make streets safer, slow the cars in a couple of different communities where you've lived. 
I know you lived in Spinard, Alaska for many years. What was that community like? And uh, what was the road diet effort that you were part of there? The Spinard, Rachel, is um, my favorite neighborhood in Anchorage, Alaska. It's, oh, neighborhood. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Got it. It's it's a great place. Um, and Anchorage is uh, organized into these community council groups. And Spinard is, is one of the one of the biggest ones. There's about 40,000 people that live in that neighborhood. I grew up there and it's a really interesting mix of people that live in Spinard. You have um, folks that live in multifamily apartment buildings. You have folks that live in mobile home parks and you have like a really kind of interesting single family kind of like urban group of, of uh, streets and neighborhoods there too. So it's a really cool, diverse mix of people that live there. Huge Korean community, huge Filipino community. Anchorage is one of those funny places that has this amazing like linguistic and cultural diversity. Not a lot of people know that, but there's more than a hundred languages spoken in the school district in Anchorage. It was where I grew up and I moved back there in 2014 from New York City with my wife and kids. And I kind of got involved in uh, in in this in this issue with my with my neighbors. You know, we were wondering why people were speeding down our street. You know, we lived on this like twenty five mile an hour residential street, and cars would like regularly come down there our street like forty five fifty miles an hour even sometimes. And you know, I, I was this crazy guy who would be out there in the front yard with a five gallon bucket full of muddy tennis balls, you know, like throwing tennis balls at big trucks and telling them to slow down because my kids were like playing and, you know, in the area. And um, I, I uh, ended up like going down to the community council meeting. A lot of people have this kind of unfavorable view of community councils and feel like they're kind of these funny NIMBY places, you know, where people just sort of oppose things. But this group in Spinard was a really interesting mix of neighbors and I, I ended up like going down there and, and, uh, and asking for a petition for speed humps. And the guy who was the president at the time told me to sit down and be quiet because speed humps are bad for the shocks on his boat trailer. And we don't do speed humps in our neighborhood. I was like, I was really taken aback, you know, I mean, I've had a lot of experience at public meetings, but I still had never seen anything quite like that before. So I did sit down. And uh, six months later, I came back with a group of my friends and we all got ourselves elected to the community council and sort of took it over. And that's what started a big campaign in that neighborhood to uh, make streets safer and to sort of finish a long process they had started for a road diet for the big central commercial road in the neighborhood. It took 20 years for us to get a road diet there, Rachel. Wow. What was the process to actually make that happen after you, you know, got some folks in uh, in the local office who were more sympathetic to that effort? Like, how'd you how'd you make it happen? Yeah, I think I think the main um, holdout for the road dad on Spinard was mostly just misinformation. In Spinard, you know, it's this neighborhood that got built by a guy who basically bulldozed a road from downtown Anchorage um, in the World War II era out to a lake and sort of built this weird like bar slash nightclub place. And, 
you know, he, he didn't like get a permit or anything. He just like got in a bulldozer and like made a road, you know, out to this lake where he had property. And for whatever reason, that curvy, beautiful, you know, road that he built sort of stayed, you know, as Anchorage developed, you know, it became like a really important sort of commercial link from the airport to downtown Anchorage. And later on, it became like this place where all, there were so many small businesses on Spinard Road. It was like the small business hub of Anchorage, if you will. And it was really defined by its, its uh, you know, small businesses that are like one story on this, like on this road with a bunch of homes behind it. And so businesses that were on the road, which was a really dangerous road with a lot of crashes. Um, you know, I think if we had the terminology back then, we would have called it a strode. Um, Strongtowns does now. Um, you know, it's like a fast moving road with people like trying to pull off to go to businesses and also, you know, narrow, unsafe sidewalks um, that end in the middle of nowhere, train tracks, all, all kinds of really dangerous stuff that was that was causing a lot of accidents. So we really wanted to make it safer by doing a road diet and turning four lanes into three lanes and slowing traffic down and, and making it a, a little bit more manageable for everybody. But the businesses on the road, they were really worried about their livelihoods. They were worried that people, if they couldn't just pull into their business and, and park, or if there were a, a, was a lane reduction, that they would see a decline in their business. So that was the biggest obstacle that we had to face. And did you, you know, find some data to kind of show them that that wasn't going to be as big of an issue as they envisioned or were you able to like test things out or just kind of win them over slowly? I think there, I think there was two big things that happened that, that really helped. One of them is that there was a, a thing that we had called Project 80s where there was like some extra money. And so uh, a short like two mile stretch of Spinard Road that's closer to the airport got a road diet. And so we had data showing that there was more volume of traffic and less crashes in this two-mile stretch where there was a road diet um, from the Project 80s work. And so we had that data to show people. And then the other thing that happened is this, this guy who, his name is Mark, and um, he has the energy of 10 men. He's in this amazing guy from Texas, and he, he's been um, a community council organizer and director for many years in Anchorage. And, and he went out and organized the businesses in on Spinard Road to sort of look at this data and see that a road diet would support their businesses. It would allow more walking and it would sort of, you know, make Spinard Road a walkable and less auto-centric place. Basically, the idea was Spinard Road isn't the way that we get somewhere. It was the destination that we're going to, where all these small businesses were held. And so I think that was the idea that ultimately swayed people, is that it was the destination, not the road that we're using to get somewhere else. It sounded like when we were chatting before um, before we recorded, you mentioned that not only was this also an effort to make the street safer, but also at the same time, there was a, a process happening where you were helping or you were working with neighbors to help this community in Spinard kind of have more of a voice in local decision-making and not be shunted off to the side as it had been in the past. What was that process like? Yeah. You know, I, I, I grew up going to school, you know, as a kid there and, and I didn't really understand 
that most of my neighbors in Spinard were folks who were, you know, recently arrived in Alaska. You know, they kind of came for the pipeline construction or maybe stayed for a job. And a lot of folks in the neighborhood were, you know, were working class folks that were renters. And I think there was this bias, Rachel, um, that, you know, that was in our neighborhood where people felt like, oh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a renter and I'm only going to be here a couple of years. And so, you know, why should I get engaged in trying to make my community better? Or, you know, why should I vote for a, a local assembly member? Or why should I go to a community council meeting? You know, there was a sort of apathy. And I think that over the over the years, that kind of developed into this, you know, kind of black hole of inaction. You know, there was like, like people in the neighborhood just didn't believe that, you know, anybody cared about this neighborhood, which was, you know, very, like I said, you know, very working class and very much like not engaged with the politics of the city. And so I, I think what one of the challenges that, that, that Spinard had when I got involved was to sort of build people's confidence and to let people know that their voices really did matter, you know, whether or not they were uh, renters or whether or not they owned businesses or, you know, it didn't matter what they did. If they lived in our neighborhood, they were our neighbors and their voices mattered. And so we just started, you know, getting involved in things and people came to community council meetings. We tried to make them more fun and more welcoming. And we tried to reach out to, uh, you know, broader communities. We, tried, we engaged the Korean community and the Filipino community in events that we organized. Um, and as it turned out, those groups had amazing organizations already going um, that I, I wasn't aware of. And we had ended up like, you know, really making a difference in the neighborhood because people just sort of started to show up. And, and even though we didn't have perfect skills for making things happen, just showing up and believing in our community was what made the difference, I think. That's such a recurring theme in many of the interviews that I've done on this show. People who just need, like, their neighborhood just needs a little bit of enthusiasm, somebody to, like, believe in it, and then people start showing up, getting involved, um, and that, you know, really makes a difference over the long haul. So We had this really fun uh, call to action I don't know if it would make sense to, to, to everybody. It didn't really make sense to me at the time, but there was this one guy um, who had a, a school bus that he had redesigned and, and he actually rented a house um, from me um, when I was away from, from Anchorage for a while. Um, his name is Jason Weir. And he started making this bumper sticker, Rachel, that said, it's always sunny in Spinard. And like, you know, in West Anchorage, it's kind of out closer to the ocean, and it is actually more sunny in West Anchorage than it is closer to these really tall 5,000-foot mountains that are on the east side of town. And and so, and it was also like a reference to, I guess, a cable TV show that I haven't really seen very much about Philadelphia. And anyway, that really caught on. You know, it's always sunny in Spinard. And um, at one point, there was this old, really scary bar. Um, that had been, you know, run into the ground. And it was a place where there was a lot of really, you know, unsavory activity. And um, one day, this guy that owned that bar tried to sell a big bag of crystal meth to an undercover DEA agent. 
and it was in a uh, it was famous because it was in a, a, a purple crown royal bag and so they called it the crown royal bust and this guy got arrested and his bar got you know uh confiscated basically by the dea and um there there had been this big 22 22 foot tall neon palm tree um that was out in front of the bar when the DEA confiscated his bar, like they had this contractor come and take the palm tree away. Everybody in Spinard, you know, freaked out about it. They were like, well, yeah, it doesn't even work anymore. You know, the neon is broken and it's covered with bird poop. But like, that's our neighborhood. You can't take that away. And so, you know, like we had this bumper sticker and this and these stickers that had like a picture of the palm tree. And it said, it's always sunny and spinard at the bottom. And it was kind of like the rallying cry for our neighborhood. So now you live in West Hartford, Connecticut. And I know that you've also been involved in uh, local campaigns and several safe streets efforts there. Um, yeah. Tell us, tell us about what you've been doing in West Hartford. I had this, this uh, long discussion, Rachel, with my wife. And um, one of the things that is a real problem and a blessing for me in my life is that my wife, Jessie is way smarter than I am. So it's like, it's really hard because I, I, you know, I, I try really hard to, to sort of, you know, present my point of view, but usually I'm wrong. And, and I'm not joking. Like my wife really is super smart. One of the things that she really wanted to do was to move um, closer to her family here on the East coast. And she worked on me for a while and, and, and I ultimately, you know, I, I saw the wisdom of it, and we moved out here to the Hartford, uh, Connecticut area. And the reason we chose here is because it's kind of close to family, and it's also this really amazing place where it's affordable, and there's like a really diverse community here. I have a piece um, on the Strongtown site today about uh, Hartford, Connecticut, and what happened in a 1950s and 60s era urban renewal where, you know, this big highway construction and a big urban renewal project was a real, you know, a problem, um, you know, in the long run for Hartford. It's a place that the population has declined a lot. So it's a really affordable place, but it also has all these like amazing remnants of being this once incredibly prosperous city from like the late 19th century, you know, like Mark Twain lived here and, and, you know, Olmstead designed parks here. And there was like this amazing, uh, prosperous city that, that existed here from like 1880 until like 1930. And it was one of the, one of the, um, real up and coming cities in America until, uh, World War II. And so when we moved here, we found these amazing neighborhoods. Um, there, there, we live in a streetcar uh, suburb, I think is what they call it these days. And it's the place where the old electric streetcar used to come from downtown Hartford out to the first ring of the suburbs here in West Hartford. And it's only like a three mile trip, right? But all of the houses are kind of walkable and close together. Um, there's like mixed businesses on the ground floor of of streets um, in in the in the main parts of this neighborhood, and so I, I was really attracted to this neighborhood as a place where I could walk and ride my bike, and my kids you know walk to school and they can walk to their friend's house, which is really cool. They can do that safely, but for some reason that I haven't quite figured out yet, uh, people in West Hartford don't 
often choose to walk or ride their bikes, even though things are really close together. And I think that there's kind of this, uh, you know, this commuter culture um, that exists on the East Coast, you know, where uh, everyone's just really used to spending a lot of time in their car to, to either go to work or, or get to places. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's also an issue is that they, they have these really wide streets, even in the sort of neighborhood streets there, the streets are super wide, like 40 feet plus. And so people drive really fast and they cut through um, neighborhoods to get places. And so we started me and, and a group of people um, we, we, you know, in the last couple of years, we got really involved in a, in an, in a long campaign that some of the older neighbors here worked on to slow down traffic on this place called on this road called North Main in West Hartford that has this really large daily volume of traffic. And it had, you know, four lanes, two going in each direction. And the city, um, after eight years, um, the city finally agreed from you know neighborhood pressure to experiment to do a, a, a trial road diet for North Main from the downtown sort of town center of our town West Hartford out to a commercial area it's a stretch of about three miles two two miles plus and they uh, had a lot of pushback from folks who thought that it would slow down their travel times in their cars. You know, and, and so I, I kind of got involved like, you know, late, late in the in the game and, and, and tried to, you know, talk about my experience in Anchorage, where a road, the road diet that we did there um, took a long time and a lot of convincing, but it turned out to be really successful. It was it made the place a lot safer and actually didn't change travel times very much for people. So right now in West Hartford, we have a project underway. Um, it's a trial road diet. Um and it's going really well. There's less crashes. And there was a thousand people that answered a survey recently. And two thirds, almost 70% of them said that it was a great safety project and that they felt that they could walk on North Main on the sidewalk um, and that traffic had slowed and that it felt safer, and felt better. People are actually using their bikes on North Main now. And, and I hope that when the trial is you know made permanent which i expect to happen that you can actually build protected bike lanes um without spending a lot of money on north main too so yeah it's it's been cool um to see that develop you know but you know I, like a lot of like with a lot of projects um involving you know roads it takes a lot of convincing for people to think differently you know they a lot of people are stressed and pressured about their day and you know feel like you know, traffic concerns are, are one of their big problems. And so, it, you know, it's hard to sort of crack through that, that, that initial, you know, reticence people have about changing their habits. Right. But you've been doing it slowly but surely. I like riding my bike around. I have this cargo bike that my kid, my kids call it the green machine because it's like painted green and it has like milk crates and buckets tied on the side. I, my wife says I look ridiculous when I'm riding. Around. But, um, I, I ride it around and people like, you know, they see me and they're like, Hey, that looks fun. You know? And I'm like, yeah, I, it, it is fun. You know? And like, I, I live like a mile from the store. So like, you know, why not use my bike to go shopping and, and, you know, it, it feels good. It's, it's more fun. 
And I answer a lot of questions about it. And that's like one of my strategies is to like, hey, you know, it's fun. I, I, I just recently uh, interviewed a guy for Strong Towns um, who's a pastor in Minneapolis. Um, his name is Travis Norvell. And, and he he's the peddling pastor of Minneapolis. And he's like also somebody who who really is committed to, you know, riding his bike around the neighborhood. And, and Travis and I both agreed, Rachel, that if you're going to make change in your community, it better look fun or else people aren't going to want to do it. Right. Yeah. So true. Yeah. I was going to ask like, what draws you to making streets safer? Why do you care about that? And why do you choose to bike and walk versus driving, which I'm sure, you know, you mentioned that that's very typical on the East coast. I'm sure it's very typical in Alaska to drive, to get around to. I mean, it's typical all over America. Why do you care about making streets safer for people biking, walking? I, I thought about it a lot, actually, over the years. And, and I think that this is this is what happened. You know, I, I grew up in a working class family. My parents both worked all the time. They were really busy. And my dad was a mechanic and my mom was a, was a bookkeeper for a, a local airplane company in um, Alaska. Anyway, I loved sports growing up. I loved soccer and I loved baseball and I loved football. And my parents were working. They didn't have time to drive me to practices. And so I had this uh, yellow Sears uh, 10 speed. Um, that's what we used to call, you know, bikes back then, you know, cause I'm kind of old. I, I, I'm talking about like life in the seventies. Right. So I, I had this yellow Sears 10 speed, Rachel, and I, I went everywhere on that, on that thing. And there were a lot of experiences I had growing up in Anchorage where I'm where I was riding my bike where I, I was hit by people and I had problems getting across big busy roadways and like I went to sports I was able to do sports because I, I could ride my bike and then later on when I had a job you know I always had a job um, you know working in restaurants or delivering newspapers or whatever when I was growing up and I, I just used my bike for everything. And so I, for whatever reason, like I, I just sort of had that perspective of, you know, what do you do if you're using your bicycle for transportation? What are the obstacles you face? And I, you know, I know firsthand that, that, you know, it's not the distance that you ride and it's not the weather and it's not like whether you're strong enough to do it. The, the big, the biggest obstacle you face when you're riding your bike in most American communities is that traffic and roadways are not designed for you they are designed for people who walk or for people who drive but if you're a person who's trying to get to work on your bike there there isn't a place for you and so i think that was really for me what sort of you know changed my perspective is i i felt like an outsider on my bicycle and i felt like i I felt like i didn't matter to people who were designing cities that i lived in and so I think that's kind of like what really sort of motivated my activism in that world. And now you're confidently riding the green green machine, as I was called. <laughs> the green machine. Yeah. All over town. Yeah, I used to have two kids on the back of it, um, but now they're big. You know, they're seven and nine. They ride their own bikes. And so I, I loaded up with groceries now. And, um, you know, I, I, I really I really love uh, riding bikes. I, and it's just so, sort of like part of my culture, you know, like my personal culture. Yeah. 
So to close this out here, um, what advice would you give to somebody listening that is interested in making streets safer where they live or just getting a little bit more involved in local decision-making and advocacy? I think that the most important thing that you can do is to show up. 80% of success, I think, for getting engaged in your community is just to show up. I, I mean, there's a million reasons that you can talk about staying home or why your voice wouldn't matter or how it's hard to get there because you're tired or, you know, whatever. You, you don't have to be an expert in public speaking and you don't have to be an expert in designing cities to be a really important voice in your community. You just really have to show up. And I think that one of the best ways to do that is to find a buddy and bring them with you and have people show up again and again and, and you know, build a community of people who want to show up and, and, and be willing to learn because every, you know, every community council and every uh, city council or city assembly has its own set of rules and it takes a little while to get used to it, but you're never going to do it unless you show up and you're not going to show up unless it's fun. So grab a couple friends, get on your bike, go to a community council or a, or a city council meeting and just show up. You know, it, it, it's so important and it seems like a really almost insurmountable step for a lot of people, but that's my advice is to just be there. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Jay, for being on the show. I will share links to your writing, especially some of the articles you mentioned today for people to peruse further. And I know people probably already have interacted with you since you've been here for a few months. People listening should feel free to get in touch with Jay if you're interested in, in writing for Strong Towns or being more involved. Thank you so much, Jay, for being on the show. It's great to be here with you, Rachel. Thanks so much. I hope you're enjoying these little opportunities to get to know Strongtown's colleagues on the show. At our last staff retreat together in March, I asked everybody for feedback on the bottom-up revolution, and they offered a lot of good input. And one thing that Jay mentioned was that he would like to hear more of me on the show. I'm someone that prefers to be the interviewer asking the questions rather than in the spotlight answering them. But uh, we did have the idea that maybe sometime we should turn the tables and I could be the guest, maybe be interviewed by a colleague like Jay or Abby. So I'd love to know what you think about that idea. And if we did it, what questions you would want to be asked on that episode. Anyway, email me to let me know your thoughts. Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L at strongtowns.org. Thanks, as always, to our Strong Towns members who support this podcast, our daily articles, our videos, our emails, and everything that we do in this movement. Um, really appreciate that support. And if you would like to join this group of over 3,000 people across the country and the world, head to strongtowns.org membership to become a member today. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you back here for the next episode. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.